So that was that was the big upside, and I was able to counteract for it. But it's just like, oh, that's right, I got to do it this way. I kind of like that challenge. I don't know what of those I'm going to find, but going back to old stuff, it's nice to remember where we've come from, know your roots, kind of thing. So I really enjoyed the heck out, especially early on when we were like very quickly figuring out, okay, what's going on. We were walking through the S traces and showing people what what I was looking for, and like I mapped out what all the FDs were that I could see, and I was just, it's just fun for me to go back and troubleshoot and do that kind of stuff. It's really nice to be able to record in the same room for once. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's a little different to be across the distance. Now, I, yes, we have video going. The potato cams are still going, but it's just not, not quite the same thing. There's a higher degree of interactivity this way, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, and the time spacing is a lot nicer because you can actually look at the person and figure out when they're about to take a breath, and you can get in a word edgewise. Right, yeah, there's that. Yeah, well, you do that anyway. You, do, you have a very good job of figuring that out. Yeah, I can just see into the future by, like, half a second to know when Jeff is normally going to stop talking, and I can so say something. Like, Proto Muad'Dib, then. Uh, let's hope not. Let's hope not, because there's a lot of other things that came with it. Yeah, and, he, and life did not turn out well for him. No, it didn't. He lost his eyes. And his life. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. everybody loses their life. Yeah, but he lost his eyes first. Even Leto the second lost his life. It was just a really, really long one. I didn't read that far. Oh, yeah, and he was also a worm. So there's like that. Uh, anyway. Uh, anyway, so, slight detour into Doondom. Yeah, so for today's episode, uh, we're going to do a retrospective on our almost seven-hour install fest debug session at Self, which for us happened last night and this morning. For all of you, it was a week or so ago. Uh, so a bit of a recap. I will have links in the show notes to the, again, almost seven-hour um, stream if you want to watch it again or if you just want to buzz through it uh, to see different time points. So long story short is for some backstory. Last year itself, I gave Jeff the challenge of installing some old Linux distributions on some hardware and seeing if he could do it. And he was very successful with Linspire. He was not successful with a bunch of other things. Right. Um, so this First year... I blame the hardware for that, to be honest. Yeah, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blame Jeff. So this year, I, it's your hardware. I set him a, another challenge. One I thought would be an easier challenge, which was I gave him an installed system that already had Red Hat version 1.1 on it. And all he had to do was get Doom running. Oh, don't trivialize this. Also, I just want to make sure, not Red Hat Enterprise Linux 1.1, Red Hat 1.1, circa 96? Uh, 95. And 95. Actually, there was no Red Hat Enterprise Linux 1.1. Okay. Enterprise sure. Linux started with 2.1. But just, just to be clear, this is not the stuff that started in the early 2000s. This is the original Red Hat back in the day. Yeah. And at the time, capital B, capital D. it was actually called Red Hat Commercial Linux. Ooh. And then I think it was version 3 or 4 that they just changed it to Red Hat Linux. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, yeah, so all Jeff had to do, the only thing he had to do, the small task, was to get Doom running. You can't see me, but I'm rolling my eyes and shaking my head. Yeah. I'm very disappointed that you would trivialize it this way. Well, I mean, realistically. Well, I guess technically you did get it running. For about five seconds. But no longer running than you've gotten it. That's correct. You wanted me to get it running full time. Right. For some reason, uh, it would run at the very beginning of the intro. It would start to show video. Everything would work fine. And then it would just lock up. So Jeff's challenge was to get it working. 
And uh, he was unsuccessful. I was unsuccessful. Despite many efforts across many different things. And uh, I can give an overview of why if we want to. Yeah, let's go into that. Okay, so I used a tool called S-Trace to figure out what system calls it was making. And I learned that in the process when you start Doom, first of all, let's go back a little bit. There's two variants of Doom. There's the S-Doom, which is command line version, and X-Doom, which runs in X-Windows X -Windows system. So to simplify things, I was, I was mostly working on the S-Doom. And I ran it through S-Trace and found out that it was spawning a child process, which was trying to start a sound server. And the child process was failing. Before the parent process opened, it was creating a pipe so it could send data to the child process. It does not know that the child process has failed because it wasn't properly doing its checks. It just assumed everything was fine. Kind of sloppier programming style back in the day that was more common. So what happens is, for, some, for whatever reason, at the same exact point, Every time once the, once the system starts up, maybe it's a number of seconds, maybe it's a number of main game loops, it tries to send a message to the child process that it spawned way back. The child process has already died because it hit an error. We, at first, we were seeing that it could not uh, find the sound server. That was pretty easily diagnosed. We just moved the sound server process into the path. And then it can't open dev DSP. Thus began a long and glorious attempt to get everything working. We ended up recompiling the kernel and adding in the sound drivers, which were not part of it before. I would just like to interject, though, that the sound server is and should not be required. You should not be. You can run Doom without sound. Yes, you can. The problem was that didn't... The problem it was, not, was... It was not respecting that. Yeah, it was not respecting that. It was still trying to go for the hardware, even when sound... It had no sound server to run. So what it should have done is it should have bailed out it should check to see that its child process is alive before it communicates across the pipe that's set up. It clones, and when it forks itself, before it does, to make sure it can communicate with the child process, it opens a pipe. Uh, and it hangs on the one end, the receiving end, and the child is on the sending end. So, like, if you want two-way communication with the child process, you set up two pipes. But uh, they just had the one way. So, uh, actually, I don't know. Two pipes or one. I think it's two pipes. Anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, it was not checking to see that the child process was alive before it tried to send a message. So it sends, it stuffs a message into the pipe that it has open. The other end is kind of hanging in the breeze because the child process died and the system gives it the sig pipe. At that point, everything freezes. So what the program should have done first is check to see if its child process is dead. If it is, throw away the pipe. There's no sound going with life. It's not doing that. Now, maybe a later version of Doom does that. We would need to evaluate the source code, but we can do that because the source code is available. And I'm tempted to do that and check it out and see if I can patch it and fix it. Because it, it's, I, I don't know how often it would be referring to that child process. Or maybe I could patch the child process to just stay alive and respond with okay to every message, even if it's not actually working. Whatever it is that makes the parent process happy. Well, the we thing is, we don't know what makes the parent process happy. We'd have to look at the code. Yeah. And we didn't have time to do that last night. So that was... If we could, if it would respect that we, with no sound server on, it would just abandon its attempts, that'd be fine. The parent process did not know that sound server wasn't running or had a, hit an error. We hit several different errors. So at first we couldn't get, because we had no sound drivers, the dev DSP device was basically attached to nothing in the kernel, so you couldn't actually read or write to it. So after figuring out where we should put the sound server so it would run, then it would kept hitting this problem, and that's when we figured out we don't have the drivers. We tried a couple different uh, cars to see if we could 
find one where we already had drivers compiled. None of them were there. And then we figured out that's because it has no sound compiled in the kernel at all. And funny, in these early days of the kernel, there was only one, one option, sound, yes or no. It's kind of amusing. So, And it's actually kind of amusing that it didn't ship with sound enabled. Right. But it wasn't enabled after an install. Well, I think at, at that point, the sound server built into oh, sound server, the, the sound system built into Linux was all written by one guy. I knew the patch. They weren't confident in it, or it was still pretty early or something. It was a port of OSS, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so he was porting over OSS and making some minor changes for to Linuxize it. They were trying to maintain lockstep with the, the sound system using Unix, effectively. Um, so it wasn't like he was designing a sound system from scratch that came later with also. It also started showing up right around 97, as I recall. I don't recall off the top of my head. Somewhere in there. It was very early. But for a long time, also, it was real buggy, so people continued to use OSS. And then also got better, and it also basically added an OSS compatibility later, so we threw out all the OSS code and just used also. I want to say that was like 99 or 2000, when we could start actually reliably using also as an OSS compatibility. Anyway. Yeah, so we tried multiple... Uh, sound cards. I had a creative card from 96. I had an A sound card. I had an Insonic card. And then I had something else, which I can't remember off the top of my head. I don't remember some other off-brand. Uh, we tried all, those were all ISA cards. We tried every single one of them. Um, no drivers. It wasn't detected by D-Message. But I do know that D-Message and the kernel and the way it enumerated devices was a little janky back in the day. It was, yes. Because I know on Red Hat 2.0, if you don't have the, uh, for a network card, the 3C509, if you don't have the driver loaded, DMessage won't even report that it sees a device. Right. I think all that stuff was added in later right. into, into DMessage. Now, I did have some PCI sound cards because that 486 motherboard that we were using has four ISAs and three PCIs. So we tried a PCI card. And before we recompiled the kernel, it saw that there was an unknown PCI device. So we Which thought, an improvement. okay, it sees there's an unknown PCI device. This We're is, making progress. This is great. Let's see if we can rebuild the kernel to then get that loaded. So we rebuilt the kernel. That was fun. And it was very also slow. fun remembering how you actually yeah. do all that back in the day because it was all very different. It was. I had forgotten most things in the order. We had to go and uh, I found the uh, compiling your own kernel doc on TLDP to remind us what to do. And we also had people on the, the self-lobby channel helping us in Matrix. Uh, so between all that instruction, we finally got to the kernel compiled, the drivers compiled, everything put together. We got it uh, brought down into an image. You can't even make BZ image because this is so early. They were not doing BZIP compression. They were just doing zip compression on the kernel. So we make make Z image and move it into the right place on the root partition and rerun Lilo. You guys remember Lilo? Yeah, that old school. Uh, and it worked. We got it to boot. First time, we had no problems with it. Like, that's one of the rare times I can think of when I compiled a kernel and it worked the first time. Like, almost always, there'd be some kind of issue. But magically, it didn't. I guess maybe because the kernel's smaller, there was fewer choices to make and fewer mistakes to make. And mostly, I was just using all the same choices it had done before. Um, Seemed to work. Yeah, but interestingly enough, once we rebuilt the kernel, then our PCI card vanished. That's right. That's true. So there's something to diagnose there that I don't quite understand. Yeah, because before it definitely saw that there was an something. unknown PCI device. And then afterwards, it was like, 
what PCI device? So it could be that we, we missed something in the kernel parameters or there was a patch that was put in to let it scan the PCI bus or something. I don't know. It'd be worth exploring. But I still do want to try and get this working. We were very close. But it got so late. It, compiling the kernel took like an hour and a half, it seemed like. Uh, maybe a little bit longer because first of all, we are going to remember how, and second of all, it's just slow to compile. It's a 46, 133 megahertz, but, wasn't it? Yeah, if you think about it, an hour to compile your kernel on a 486 really isn't that good. bad. That's pretty good. That's very good. I can remember four or five hours as the kernel. In that, in that era, kernel was very quickly growing because it was a, you know gaining popularity and it was gaining drivers for a lot of devices people had. So the kernel zoomed from Let's just say it's 100, unit list 100. That's the size of the kernel we were compiling last night. Inside of a couple of years, it was like unit list 400. It just zoomed. And so everything took a lot longer to compile, especially if you were compiling a ton of things. You were prophylactically compiling all the kernel modules just in case you had that at some point in the future. It could take seven or eight hours. So there was definitely cause to be careful about what you were compiling in because otherwise you'd be waiting for a very long time. So... Us getting it right in the first time and it compiling that fast on the 486 is actually a pretty important. That's I'd say that's a pretty big success. And I actually wonder how much of the compile time. Well, like we weren't CPU bound, but we were I/O bound because obviously that system is using a an old parallel ATA hard drive. Mm -hmm. um, now it is a fast CPU. It's a it's a 486, but it's 120 megahertz. 120. Uh, yeah, it's by AMD. And it does have 64 meg RAM. So I almost wonder what would have happened if we tried to build the kernel in a RAM disk on that machine. I was just thinking machine. that. We could probably make it happen like in 20 minutes, 25 minutes. I guess the question is, do you think 64 meg would be enough to build the kernel? Kernel source itself was not huge, wasn't it? I don't remember. Well. I don't think we ever did a, a, a DF on the uh, directory. No, we didn't. That's another thing. I think we could probably... Because the system, I, was, I checked it, it was using like at idle eight or nine megabytes. And then there was two or three that it's go ahead and swapped out, you know, enthusiastically. I guess swappiness was turned up or something. And then it had buffered 47 megabytes of hard drive stuff in RAM for us. So I guess I kind of figured that the system was doing the buffering for us as much as it could since we were hitting those files. It was, you know, deciding i don't remember how good the scheduler the, uh, the memory mapper was back in those days probably not very efficient probably not very good uh probably just least recently used uh but i would hope that the files we were hitting a lot which would be the kernel source would be uh, cached in ram so they'd be cached for we were reads, already getting up but they wouldn't up. be cached for writes hmm. yeah because Maybe i don't think true. the early kernel had write caching i don't think the... and i know that chip that board doesn't have the uh the extended write cache for the CPU. Yeah. So I, if I were to guess, I would think that the kernel source would fit inside, say, a 48 megabyte RAM disk or 40 megabyte RAM disk, but not the kernel plus all the build uh, artifacts plus the built product would not fit in 40 megabytes. So I don't think we could have done the whole thing in a RAM disk. We would need more RAM than that to do it. But it's a worthy experiment. Uh, I don't know where we could find RAM from that era that could increase the RAM. Uh, I could. There's people that have old RAM on eBay. And there's a few manufacturers that are still making old RAM specifically for the people that want to do like retro gaming and stuff. That's cool. So yeah. that system obviously has four 16 meg DIMMs. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, there's probably somebody out there who has made 32 meg DIMMs or SIMs, mm -hmm. I should say. 
64 megabytes is quite a lot the of question RAM. question is that system. whether or not that board could support it. Yeah. So I'd have to go on to Vogons and dig around and see. Um, I have heard of people with 486s being able to get like 512 meg on their systems Whoa, with 428 meg. That would be plenty. Um, but those were very specific boards. Mm-hmm. There may have been some other tweaking involved. I would expect. Another interesting thing with some of those old boards is the spec that it actually says it can handle isn't what it can actually handle. But mm. when they wrote the documentation for it, you know, they said, oh, yeah, it'll take, like, I think actually that board's one of them. If you actually go into the documentation, it'll say that it'll take one, two, or four meg sims. Mm. It doesn't say that it'll take eight or 16. But it, but it does. Mm-hmm. So they just never updated the documentation because they were onto new boards and didn't care. Mm-hmm. Things were advancing so fast back then. Yeah. Yeah. It was, that was a tough business back then because the pace of advancement was happening so much, and a lot of the advancement was happening in silicon or on a board. So you'd, you'd publish a board spec and start making the boards, and it was already obsolete. So it was really hard to make money back in those days. Like they were just the, the leapfrog effect was so fast. Now, I remember we hung on to uh, processors a lot longer back then. Like the 46 lasted four or five years in the public consciousness. It was like 96, 95 through 99 or 2000, like that. The other thing is they kept make they kept being able to make them better. Mm-hmm. Um, like the first 486 was probably, probably 30, 33 megahertz. 33, I think 33. Um, yeah. I have another AMD that I could put in that system that's 133. Cool. Um, okay. I, I need to actually get pull the jumpers out because you have to switch all the dip switches on the board. Oh, uh, yes, things we had to do back yeah. then. Um, I'd have to have to redo that because right now I don't have enough on there to do it. I have to find my other switches or dip jumpers. Um, but I know that board people have been able, there's a guy on, uh, on YouTube. I forget his, his account off the top of my head, but he has managed to overclock on that board to, I think 140 or 180 megahertz. Ooh, getting up there. Um, cause he actually set the world record for fastest 46. Wow. And he also did other things where like, the PCI lanes are run at 30 megahertz, but you can, he was able to overclock it to 60 megahertz. Wow. Um, and he, there's like a trick where like he had to partially boot the board and then change the jumpers Ooh. because you can set it to it. Like, I think it was 33 and then maybe like 40, mm-hmm. but he found that if you set it to 40, initially start the boot as soon as post is, or like post is almost done. You then j- connect the jumper for the other one it'll then actually glitch out and allow it to go to 60. That's crazy. Um, it's a really interesting video. I actually think I may have sent that to you a while ago. You might no, have. I, no I, I put it in the our Opinion Dominion Telegram channel, the Matrix channel, yeah. because it was really cool seeing him explain how he did it. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that stuff. And then he came back a couple months later and then found a way to get it even faster. That's, so, that's a cool hobby. Yeah, that, that kind, that, that kind of hardware that. hacking is really cool. And it brought back a lot of nostalgia for me, like building computers back in the day and, and kind of geeking out on all the parts and the processes. And I remember when we got our first uh, hard drive that was greater than one gig, and I thought, this is so much space. What are we going to use this all for? Inside of a year and a half, it was full. Because, like, again, the progress of stuff was happening. MP3s arrived, and so now you were downloading MP3s and your little 1.6-gigabyte Fireball ST drive, which is what we had, got full of MP3s and stuff. So somewhere not long after that was when Napster started showing up, like 98, 97, 98, something like that? Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah, uh, Napster was huge. So hard drives got full a lot faster when Napster showed up. Yeah. I'll just say that. Uh, but it just brought back a lot of fun memories. And also, it was a very good representative 
sample of what it was like to do Linux and computing back in those days. If you had a problem, you were going to have to go, we were joking about it on, on, the, on the video last night, you sometimes you'd find a problem, and the solution also had a problem, you had to go fix that, but then in the process you'd find another problem. You just, you'd have this stack that goes three, four, five, six problems deep. You had the tenacity to go through all those problems and finally fix the first one. Because you had to learn a lot along the way, or remember a lot, which is what we had. And then you had to execute everything right. And on those days, it was never a guarantee that even if you did everything right, it was going to come out with a perfect product. It was a lot more non-deterministic back then. Sometimes things would just not work the same. And we all accepted that. We also all accepted how often you rebooted. It was just a thing, you know? I believe Windows 95, it had a counter for how many minutes or seconds it had been up. And the counter would overflow after something like 43 days. But because Windows 95 never survived that long, people didn't find out about this counter overflowing. It was never a problem. Can you imagine your operating system never making it past 43 days? That's just wild in today's parlance. I mean, systems will stay up for three years, even with kernel updates. It's crazy. Yeah, live kernel patching is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Um, the other thing that I, I loved about it is the accessibility of doing hardware hacking back then. was It was actually impossible. Yes, it was. I mean, I remember on, I believe it was it Pentium era. It was probably AMD, actually. If you bought one of the chips, you could actually bridge solder contact points on the top of the CPU, on the, uh, on the circuit part, not on the actual silicon. Um, and you could actually overclock your, your CPU I remember this. by bridging it. Because then internally, it was like, oh, this is actually this chip. Mm -hmm. So they did that. So that in the fab, they could just actually bridge that on the production line to mm -hmm. create segmentation in their stack. It would probably test how much how much speed that silicon could handle, that particular unit or batch could handle it. And then they'd say, okay, these, this batch can handle that speed. Bridge that jumper, you get the higher speed. Oh, it, wasn't, it wasn't just even binning. It was just okay. they were creating market segmentation for their different products. Oh, okay. And it was literally you just, you just bridged these two solder points and boom, you had a, a CPU that was worth an extra $80. I remember doing that, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, my 166 Athlon that I got, um, I, we used a pencil, I think. I had to stub something out to, to burn a trace, run a trace, and then and then do something else around it, also connected with graphite. I was like, how's this going to last? But you're supposed to like use your pencil and like put a lot of graphite down until it would survive. And yeah, we got I got to overclock from like 130, no, I think it was 133, and I got to overclock to 166. I was like, I'm not going to push it any more than that, because that's already pushing it. Right. My fan was hot, and I was... I had a very loud computer in my room for years, and I just got used to it. But, uh, yeah, I remember those days. Yeah. The other thing that I loved about systems back in the day is so many things were done through add-in cards. Mm -hmm. Unlike today's motherboards, where, yeah, you still have PCI slots, but realistically, you're putting in a GPU, maybe, you know, an HBA or something like that, or a video capture card. But most yeah. of your PCI lanes aren't being populated, which is, of course, mm -hmm. why you go buy a modern system, you only have like 24 PCI lanes to actually use. Right. Um, but like back in the day, ISA cards and PCI cards, I mean, you would have anywhere from four to 10 on a motherboard because, yeah. well, you need to add in your sound card. You need to add in your video card. You need to add in your network card. If you wanted a mm -hmm. modem too, you had to add that in. So there were all these extra, oh, you wanted to add in a CD drive. Well, some of the original CD-ROMs, you had a PCI card you had to put in so that it would work. you wanted a USB, so that USB was the thing you had to add in. in. So you wanted to add headers. more hard drives, you had to exactly. add in another IDE controller. Right. So there were all these cards that you could add in, which was, A, fun, just to, to slot them in, figure out what order you want them and all that. But then yep. down the road, you could 
just like we do with GPUs now, you could pull it out and upgrade your system. Right. So if your IDE controller, if you wanted to get a faster one for a faster drive that came out, you wanted to go from, uh, what was it, Super in, into a Super ATA? Was that it? Or Yeah, it's... Uh, Super I IDE, I think it was. I think uh, the max it ever got to is one thirty three. Yeah, uh, one thirty three. But you could you could pull out your old controller card, put in the new one, so it could hook up to your hard drive. So then you'd get the newer, newer mm-hmm. bandwidth. Uh, there were all those things that you could upgrade your system incrementally. Where nowadays yeah. it's just, well, you're going to go buy a new CPU, motherboard, and RAM. Pretty much, and that's it. You're done. It also allowed you to customize yeah. the system more according to what you wanted, mm-hmm. because. When what you're getting is just a motherboard, it's what the manufacturer decided. Mm-hmm. And while the manufacturers like Asus, they do make a ton of motherboards. But if there's like a specific thing you're looking for, well, sorry about your luck. Right, yeah. Back then, it seemed like all the variability. I, I had a thought, though. Um, this was very early internet days. How did we learn about the Athlon overhacking hack? Over, overclocking hack? How did you learn about that? That's a good you question. Remember? I don't know where. I think I learned that from guys down at the first Saturday sale day or something. Or they maybe pointed me towards a doc that would have been probably online somewhere on a bulletin board or uh, probably a university website because a lot of the universities had their systems and they had every every user on there had their own home directory hosting stuff. And a lot of the tech guys were at universities and hosting the stuff they learned on their home directories. But I don't know where I would have learned it first. So I think I learned it on a forum somewhere. Hmm. Um, but I don't recall exactly. Uh, the state of Maryland at the time, they had a uh, a network set up. So other than, you know, if you paid for AOL or, Com- or um, CompuServe or Prodigy. Prodigy, that was the other one. Yep. So they had the public library system had modems, which if you knew about, that was kind of the trick, you could dial in to the library and then use the library networks to get online. That's so cool. So from your house, you could get online. Now, wow, that's neat. It was it was very limited. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, actually, it wasn't even graphical. Mm. So, I would have anticipated they had like an ISDN line into the library, and that would be their link to the internet. Because, mm-hmm. like, we the the program that you had to use was like, oh man, I don't even remember what I think it was. Kermit. I think I know I used Kermit. I know I used Gopher, mm-hmm. but no, it was a it was a DOS program that you would load. And Com plus. it was a, uh, that's what we used. Com it was plus. a modem thing of some kind. Mm-hmm. And then you would just get the, what signal, what data gets sent back is text you had to pick only. A, pick the protocol, like Z modem or Y modem. That's a couple of those you could use when you were dialing up. And then you would dial, you'd, you'd tell it uh, AT, DT, then the number you were dialing. And it would, I was like talking directly to the modem to do it. Mm-hmm. And then as long as I had to set the protocol right and I got the right number and there was something on the other side to receive, then it would just start streaming. And now you were text. Yeah. Just like you were logged into their interface and you could go do whatever. Yeah, because it so it at looked, first you would just search the library, but then there was an option to go search out past the library into the interface. Okay, so ours didn't work that way. Ours okay. was like you got effectively what you would look at now and be like a links browser. Okay. Um in your shell. Like that's what you got, and you landed cool. on the library webpage. Cool. And you could use them or you could just, you know, browse go else. to the, the address bar and put in another address. That's cool. So it's like it was like running links, but uh, across the modem. Yeah. That's cool. Those were the days. Those were those were the days. I also remember having some nerdy friends that were you know up on stuff too, and so we do things like play Magic the Gathering across a modem connection where we're typing to each other. There's no reason we could have gone over to this house because he was in the same neighborhood, but it was cool to do it this way, right? 
Plus, also, you can lie about what cards you were finding. Yeah. Oh, look, another fireball. Oops. You know? Yeah. That kind of stuff went on. But it was just like a, a reason to use the modem and a reason to, to communicate. I, I believe I, I was fascinated with the modem so much. My dad reminded me recently that we actually had a second line put in because I was using the modem so much. We had the primary line, and I was not allowed to use the modem on that. And then we wired the computer into the secondary line. And that was so that when I was doing all my weird phone stuff or trying to play Warcraft or Doom across the modem, I would not clog the primary line. I don't know how common that was. But back then, it was a lot. When modem usage was heavy, a lot of people had ordered a second line for that. So we don't do that anymore. People don't even have phone lines in their house anymore. Mostly, they just use their cell phones. I haven't had a home line in my house or, or my apartment since 2007, maybe. Yeah, I think from... There goes one of my squirrels. Um, hey, squirrel. I think I would probably say about 50% of the people that I know don't have a home line. Mm-hmm. And it's a generational gap, too, I bet. No, it's actually not. Really? Okay. Yeah. It'd be interesting to try to see if I could figure out if there was any trends. But My parents have been flirting with getting rid of their home line they've had for decades. Because pretty much the only people that call also have all the cell phones. And so you'll call the house, and since it's mostly spam, they just ignore it. And then you call their cell phone, which is what you should have done to begin with. So they're like, should we even keep this line? Like, well, I guess. So the nice thing about the phone line is that, I mean, unless the poles are down, the power can be out and it'll still work. True. So in an emergency situation, it's great. You can also put a very, very small, low-current flashlight on the phone circuit, as long as you don't tap it too much, because there's batteries in the other end. So you can have... There was these lights that would use um, power and then also connect it to the, the phone, and it would detect when the power had gone out, and then it would start putting out light to the phone cable from the, the phone connection. But not many watts. Enough to see a little bit in the room, but it's because it was always... You know, nowadays, a lot of the phones are uh, basically some ONT box at the site of the house itself. If you're going to have some kind of battery backup, it's going to be on site. Wow, what are they doing? Yeah. The squirrels are tapped they're, they're, out. Uh, they're... Construction, I think. Construction, okay. They're building a squirrel army. All right, squirrels, we're recording. Go away. No, but uh, it seemed like, it seems to me like there's a big generational gap in people that still have house lines and those that don't. And it's not like a house line is cheap either. With the, now that uh, nationwide calling is built into every plan practically, free, uh, a house line is like $35, $40. It's not, well, that's why you cheap. get the triple play, Jeff, where you get your no. phone, internet, and TV all bundled. No, that's the worst part. I did that for about two weeks, and I hated it because the only people calling to the house line, this is the last time I had a phone line in the apartment. The only people calling to the phone line were spammers. And when you're watching TV, the cable box was integrated with it, so it would pop up and like block most of your TV that someone was calling. And I'm like, I don't care. And there was no way to make it go away. So basically for 30 seconds while, the, while it's ringing, I can't watch TV. I was like, this is stupid. I'm taking this back and getting the plan without telephone. Wow, that's weird. I haven't actually seen a combo thing where it would display your phone stuff on your TV. Yeah, it was really annoying. I had it a while ago, but the fact is, is I just, I rarely use the phone and I rarely use the TV. So true. Yeah. You know, there's no real value for you. Yeah. So. Uh, but getting seems... back to last night. Yeah. Sorry. Last night. So what do you wish you knew at the beginning of the night? that you know now um i wish i had known that we were going to, have to compile the kernel because i would have gotten that start no it would have been very boring up front there was no knowing that we were going to, have to compile the kernel to at least try 
Uh, it's like an hour to an hour and a half. That was just going to be dead time. We could have scheduled it when we were trying to go get some dinner or something. We could have made arrangements. Okay, we're going to compile the kernel and we'll do something else for a little while while it's compiling. We'll leave that up in the background so you can see it, but we're going to amuse you in different ways. You know, show and tell around the room or something. We could have had a better, better experience. But I think we were trying to do everything else but compile the kernel, knowing it would take some time. And so it kept being pushed back and back and back. And then there were some decision points along the way where we were like, well, we could try this, we could try that. And several times the decision point was, do we keep trying to fix this child process that's breaking, or do we just try to hop over to XDIM and maybe it won't do it? Uh, the X, X server version. So those things, I think, if, if we'd had knowledge going in, I would have made different choices. But that was part of the, the plan was that I was going in completely blind. I believe a couple months ago when you, when you hit this problem, like six weeks ago, you'd asked me for some help. And I was like, have you tried this? And we didn't really ever follow it up because I think you realized, wait a second, this would be a really good thing to give the Jeff to try. Yeah. And I really enjoyed I it. I figured other people would enjoy seeing the process because yeah. it's not something that a lot of people are aware of, mm -hmm. what it all requires, um, how it worked before. Do you hear that? Yeah. Is that coming through? Yeah. That, I don't know if they're hearing it on the thing. But it's like this. It's like they're doing a record scratch. Like they're doing. No, that's them rolling, rolling big nuts so they, along. Collected nuts, and they're rolling into your them. house. Yeah. Oh lord. Yeah, the joys of my house. Uh, but anyway, that's pretty funny. I, I anyway. figured other people would find it enjoyable to see, you know, what the process used to be like. Because for the mm -hmm. most part, a lot of these days, for a lot of Linux users, when they run into a bug, it's like, okay, I'll report the bug, and then I'm I'm done. I'm going to wait. Um, and it'll get fixed by the developer. Or, you know, they'll mm -hmm. fill out the bug reporting tool, which sends the dump and all the stuff along, so mm -hmm. the dev can look at it and figure it out. But back in the day, if you were a user of any substance, you were having to do this all the time. All the time. So, for everything you tried, it was always a challenge. I figured it would be interesting for some of the people that didn't remember it or didn't experience that to see it. Mm -hmm. Uh I, I heard someone described it as rowing uphill, which is a weird metaphor. Yeah. It also kind of works. Every time you try to do something, you were rowing uphill. Yeah, and uh, I, I think, though, <laughs> the people who are most into it were actually the people who used to suffer. Right. They were like, oh, I remember I this. I remember this. Yeah. Jeremy last night kept having flashbacks to stuff that he was doing back then. Uh, we had a couple of the users that clearly had been around back then, too. But the one the one person who actually remembered how to compile the kernel was trying to coach us through, but we were so distracted with all the stuff we weren't really paying attention to him very much or her. So. Yeah, they, they were also um giving us information that was too new for the system that we were running. That's true, yeah. Because I don't think they realized how old of a system I threw at you. Yeah. That was it was ancient. Like I was I was I was fun kind of figuring out, okay, how far along the development uh the tab completion was incomplete. Like so sometimes tab completion would work. I couldn't figure out the pattern of when it would and when it wouldn't. I thought I did at first. If you're in a directory and referencing a file in that directory, tab complete works. Sometimes when I was referencing a, a file in a different directory, tab completion would work. Sometimes it wouldn't. I'm wondering if it was some kind of, had I been into that directory, which would cause bash to gather the, the directory entries and maybe it's caching them. If it hadn't been to a directory, it couldn't tab complete, but if it had, it'd be able to refer to its cache. Maybe. I don't know. I'm wondering if it had to do with path. Okay. If the directory too. was in path, maybe so. Then it was like it's okay, a search. Yeah. yeah, maybe so. That obviously is something that changed later. So you can tab complete anything; it'll just do a lookup in that directory. Right. That's a nice thing. Uh, I had to use VI because Vim wasn't around then. Mm -hmm. I think Vim was ninety-seven. Uh, what are the things that I have to go back? Oh, uh, no virtual terminals. It's really cramped my style. When I when I work in, in Linux, I'm very parallel. So I'll have something going, 
Like I could have been while the kernel was compiling, I could have gone to a second terminal and kind of worked on something else. But there was just there was no virtual terminal. Was just, you were looped straight into the console. That was it. You had yeah. the console running, like old school Unix. A lot of the old school stuff. It was just you had the one screen. Um, oh, you could have logged into X. Yeah. So then you could have open two terminals. Yeah. I didn't think about that. I guess I really didn't want to start X because X adds a whole other dimension. That was fun though. Remembering about X Configurator, X for eighty six. I had so many challenges back in the day configuring X for eighty six, and you also had the paranoid fear that if you got your mode lines wrong, you were going to burn your monitor out. Because they had warnings everywhere, like "Don't get these mode lines wrong." I remember thinking, "This is kind of cool. You would never do this in Windows. Like, this is hardcore. I'm having to program my monitor, and it's like a hardware limitation. I'm literally telling it hardware wise what the refresh rate should be, what how long does it have to get, you know." You know, you get the vertical vertical refresh and the horizontal refresh. You're, you're programming all those things in. Like, if you get it wrong, you burn your monitor out. But you can do some really cool things. And I remember in the back in the day, some monitors were highly sought after because they could actually do more than what their specs were published for. You get a higher resolution than what it thought. And so you're paying for a lower resolution monitor and getting, like, this monitor says it can only do 640, but you got, you were able to squeeze 800 by 600 out of it. Stuff like that. Did that you was, ever burn a monitor out? I got close one time. Okay, I, I did. I did once. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it was actually... It was, it was later when I was trying to use something to do something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I grabbed an old monitor and I just was blowing through and didn't think. Uh-huh. I had kind of forgotten that mode lines were a thing and, mm-hmm. you know, you had to set it up. So when I hit that point, I'm just like, oh, yeah. So I just was like, oh, well, this is what I remember. Typed it in. Yeah. Oops. It was a bad day. I bet. Yeah. I used to carry, I used to actually keep a spare monitor around, an older one, like a 15 inch. It also is like, monitor seems to come to the same size as 13, 15, and 17. You were rich, you could afford a 17, but they were massive and heavy and they wouldn't move around. So I had a 15. And that's what I would lug back and forth to like land parties and such. And I had collected, I kept my old monitor when I got the next one. Because in case I accidentally burned out the one that I was using, I would still be able to use the computer. Otherwise, I would have to go to Rise or Micro Center and get a new monitor. So I remember actually transporting systems to and from a land party, figured out a good way to transport it. You put the monitor, the big bulky thing, so its screen is facing the seat in the back. And then you could tuck the tower. Reasons to get a tower, not a desktop. Tuck the tower in behind the, the front seat, between the front seat and the bench of the second seat. And you could transport that and just kind of put all your other stuff around it, your peripherals, in like a little milk crate or something. So, anyway, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, I could have gone to X and I would have had multiple terminals. Uh, I just was not wanting the challenge of, of dealing with X. I just, I'm, I'm, I do all my stuff in the command line, even today. I don't really interact with anything visual or GUI on Linux. Uh, my home laptops are, are Mac, and my desktop at home is a Windows machine so I can play games. So I don't have a like a portable. There's no reason. To, I got old laptops to install uh, Linux on. And my current Mac is getting a little bit old, so I'm thinking I'm going to buy one of these uh, completely open laptops and move over to Fedora or something. That's honestly thinking about Fedora. I haven't decided on what company or what model. It'll be about price point. I just oh. want to make sure that everyone noticed that uh, Jeff's just snuck in kind of on the sly, on the chill that uh, he uses Mac. Just, just, I, I just thought want to this point was that widely out. known. You've, it didn't, you've, it didn't, you know. You've made fun of me about this before numerous times. This is not an unknown thing. Maybe, maybe for a brand new listener. Yes, I am a Mac user. At work, I've, I've worked on Macs for 14 years or something. Uh, all my workflow is built around certain things in the Mac. Now it's starting to evolve because Mac has evolved. Uh, but I've also used Linux heavily 
I, I do a lot of server Linux stuff. And for a long time, I had uh, Linux desktops and laptops. And that's what I used. There was always that fight. And we've talked about this in the past episode. There was always a fight about, I want to play games, but it doesn't work very well on Linux. So I would have to keep a Windows system around. And inevitably, what happens is they get tired of flopping back and forth, and I just stick with Windows. So, but now, in the modern era, you don't have to do that because like most of the good games on Steam, they're all support Linux. Yeah, and Proton's pretty incredible. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing what, modern, what the future is. You don't need Windows in your life at all if you don't want it. So whenever I build a new system, uh, a new desktop system, I will probably go Linux because there's no need for Windows anymore. So the question is, Jeff, with this old system and with Doom, mm-hmm. where do we go from here? I mean, to fix it? I think um, part of it is going to be figuring out why that PCI device disappeared. I think that's important. We also need to look up how it was you would enumerate um, things on the ISA bus. There was a tool that you could use to have it scan the ISA bus or something. No, it's a PCI bus. LSPCI. Well, that would work for the PCI bus. Right, but there's there's got to be a way to... No, ISA was set up by hand. You would set up the IRQs, as I recall. So you would know what IRQ and what address everything was at because you already set it ahead of time. Or you'd look it up. Maybe it was in the, the, uh, the definition for the card. You'd buy a card. It'd come in a box. And in the box, it would have instructions that say its default is uh, address 220 or something. So we don't have the instructions for those. We'd need to kind of locate that and make sure we had it right. And then we would have to recompile the kernel so we could actually reach a sound card. And then I would expect, so the farthest we got, when we got sound turned on, we got it rebooted into the new kernel that we built. All of a sudden, we were able to read and write data to dev DSP, which was you know the, the raw way of getting data to your card, your sound card. It was not working before because there was no sound driver on the other side. Now with the new kernel, there was a sound driver. We could write, read and write to it. So we ran it one final time because we were very tired and it was going to close out for the night. And the S-Trace captured that it did successfully open dev DSP. Then it tried to issue a command to it, some IOCTL. And this was an early version of S-Trace where it does not show you what the structs are. So I need to look up what those, what those values are that it tried to set the IOCTL as and then figure out what it was trying to do to send to the sound card. So that's the next step. And also to make sure that we would probably also want to make sure that the sound card works via other means. And then I'm pretty sure that it would work with that. Well, I know all those sound cards work. Okay, right. Then working on in Linux that system, is the we so could actually send information to it. Here's the question for you. Can you, would you be able to dig through the driver code to then get the actual vendor IDs and device IDs so we could look those up so we could find in that version of the kernel what actual sound cards would be supported. Probably, yes. And we could also go a couple versions newer and see, because I think that unknown PCI device would be enumerated in a later version of the kernel. We could figure out, do a bisect to figure out when it was enumerated, what was changed, and what would we need to backport, if anything, to get it to work. Now, it depends on if they had moved to kernel 2, I don't remember when 2 was released. Remember that? I don't remember off the top of somewhere, my head. Somewhere in there. 2 didn't last long. They went to 2.2 pretty quick, as I recall. So, but there were some major changes in how they were doing drivers and stuff in those versions. So we would, we would go forward in the kernel source to find when those devices that you have were enumerated and figure out how we could bring it back. That'd be another way we could do it. Um, as I recall, I had to do sound stuff. It's one of the earliest major problems that I had, as I've alluded to in past episodes. And I do recall now the old sound system. You would just tell it, yes, I want sound. And then it would go into like a sub menu and it would have all these different drivers and you had the option of turning them on or off. And the ones you had on, you would tell it the details it needed to know. 
And I also recall you had to go into your BIOS to set the IRQs and everything. You had a limited number of IRQs, which was, a, you know, until they started doing IRQ sharing, whenever that was, sometime in 97, 98, something like that. But before then, you had to set an IRQ per card, and then you would have to tell the kernel when it was doing it, basically, this is the IRQ for that device. Now, I recall doing that as a module. You wouldn't have to recompile the entire kernel, just compile the sound part as a module. I don't know why it, gave, it didn't give us an option to do it as a module. Because that was like 1.1. Oh, okay. That may have been why. But there was a modules directory that I kept going into thinking there should be something in here. So the kernel we had was just too young to have actual working kernel modules. Yeah, the only, the only module it had was uh, an Intel module of some kind. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that I, IBCD. CS or whatever. Whatever that was, yeah. I didn't look into what it was. Yeah. And that disappeared after we recompiled. So either that was brought in out from the cold or um it just was missed it was a it was something a patch in the original version now the, if it was patched that would have been in the source code we've got the source code straight off of the install disk yeah and what's supposed to happen is the source that's on the disk exactly matches what was used to build the binaries on the disk well i mean yeah but also remember we're talking very very early days yeah so it's possible that the I think actually the IBCS or whatever it was. That'd be Intel was a, binary a, compatibility system. I yeah. I believe there was a directory just for it. Okay. I don't remember seeing so, that directory. So it was on the second disc, I okay. believe. So it must have been it was an option. We just didn't bring it into our source tree before we compiled the source. I don't think that affected it because Doom still ran and did the exact same thing. Yeah, it behaved the same way. So I'm pretty sure that had nothing to do with it. But uh I honestly think we need to get the sound card working at all, period. And I was also looking into ways you could, tr you could trick the system, trick in air quotes, into using the PC speaker as if it were a sound card. Yeah, you're supposed to be able to do that. Yeah, so I was looking up at ways, and that's, that's probably the first thing I would try. Because if we can get the PC speaker functioning as a sound card, and we have this sound device built into the kernel already, we wouldn't need anything else. I think it was just a matter of creating the... Back in these days, you had to create your devices by hand, you would pre-create them and they would live permanently. We didn't have any UDEV or anything like that. So we would create uh, a device that matches the PC speaker with the, the DSP interface layer. But we would use that translation device and name it DSP, whatever the major minor words. Boy, I don't miss those days. So I think that actually the simplest thing would be to try to find a sound card that works. Yeah. I think that would be step one. Mm -hmm. Step two would be then trying to go down the PC speaker route. Right. And then step three would be trying to backport another sound card's code into the kernel. Right. And the, another alternative would be try and locate the Doom source. I imagine the Doom source that is available is newer than what we were trying to run. If we could compile that, it may have actually had proper checks for, hey, the sound server thread died. The sound server process died. Don't communicate with it. Yeah, well, we had version 1.0 of Doom and 1.8. 1.8, that's right. Uh, 1.0 did nothing, as I recall. It didn't do anything? No, it didn't. I don't think so. Okay. We tried. It only had X Doom, as I recall. The 1.0 only had X Doom. So we fired up X. We tried to run it, and it immediately didn't do anything. Like it, it failed right out of the gate with the same sound server thing. And also, it told us we needed the 256 color palette. Right. 1.0 and 1.8 both told us that we needed to do better in X when in X in our settings we needed to have a wider color palette. Yeah, I think I would need a um a PCI graphics card uh, for maybe. that. 
maybe. Because yeah, okay, I, my ISAs, I don't think that ISAs would do 256. I ran Doom back in the day. I didn't run it on Linux. Maybe it's a Linux. Right. Yeah, okay. I ran it on DOS back in On the day. DOS, I didn't. It would interface probably directly with the video card because you could access the video RAM at um, A000, whatever that space is. Right. Uh, basically, starting at, at the fourth gigabyte of RAM, which incidentally is also why in 32 bit windows, you can never get more than three gigs of RAM because the started memory mapping hardware devices at the fourth gigabyte. That's why that happened. But you could directly access the, uh, the video card. Because I, I wrote a library in late high school to do that very thing. I was doing uh, 16 color and 256 color modes. And you could set certain things in certain pieces of memory and then uh, push something to a certain hardware address and the video card would flip. So I was writing a library to do that. I think we could figure out without a ton of trouble how to get X working with 256-bit colors. As Jeremy suggested, if we drop the resolution and we have more RAM, we could do 256 colors, which is 8-bit, as opposed to 4-bit colors. Okay, so here's my question. Is there actually a hardware issue in doing that on a very old graphics card? Like, do we even know mm. if it can actually do the math for that? I don't actually know. Because... When I pulled the specs for the four ISA graphics cards I had, none of them talked about how many colors they could do. Well, they, they would use like CGA mode or VGA mode, or something, right? Yeah, it was just VGA. Yeah. So we used to, we would talk about VGA, right? VGA, CGA, EGA. Yeah, but none of them said anything else about how many colors. Hmm. Which Super VGA was two fifty six, right? I believe. I thought that then got backported into regular VGA. Well, I'm, I'm sure it did. So it's but Super, Super VGA became whatever I thought of as VGA. Yes. I think is what happened. Okay. Which technically I think was XGA originally. Originally, yes. But there were people who by this time were tired of using no, the... Super VGA came first, then XGA. And people called Super VGA just VGA for simplicity's sake. Mm -hmm. Even though they're technically different modes. Even though it was technically different. And then when XGA became the standard, then people just kept calling that VGA. And then at that point, we started talking bit rates instead. We were just all, yeah. we, was all we were on the VGA. It's just a matter of what bit rate and what could you video RAM do. So, I don't actually know. That's a good thing to consider. But then, I'm pretty sure Doom running in DOS or running on the command line was doing 256 colors. There's but no again, that was DOS. Yeah. So why could and DOS that was do on it? whatever graphics card you had at the time? Because I know the Packard Bell that we had when I was a kid, um, it would not do 256k. Okay, or 256 colors because I wanted to play SimCity 2000 and I couldn't. You could that. Yeah. Okay, so then why would Doom be able to run it on the command line with 256 colors, but X not be able to do it? You see what I'm saying? Uh, see, I think that's an issue of the X version of Doom was coded for 256, and the command line wasn't. Because we never got that error from the you command think, line. You think that the command line Doom we were running was only using 16 colors to do all that rendering? No. There's a bunch of different greens and browns in there that needed to be 256 colors. That was 256 colors. So Doom proved that that system could do something full screen at 256 colors. Maybe it was 320 by 240. I don't remember. I didn't remember. I didn't check the resolution in Doom. But it proved that it could do 256 colors of some kind. So what we would need to do then is to get X to whatever resolution was required to do 256 colors. Then we could have run X Doom inside that. Well, we still have the same problem. We would still have the same. We have still have to sell the sound thing, and that's I think if we go through all the other sound steps and we still can't get it working for some stupid reason. I think it would work at that point. Even if we had no speakers plugged in, 
if we'd gone through all the sound stuff and got it working, I think Doom would have run. But if it wouldn't, then I would have to go look at the source code and figure out there's got to be a way to kill or intelligently check, hey, my child process for sound server died. I'm going to stop. And I would expect they would have done something. Since it got open source code, people were submitting patches to it to improve it. Mm -hmm. So someone along the way has had this problem, I bet, and said, there's an easy fix for this. I'm going to put this fix in. Here you go. Just go look at accepted PRs or just look at that part of the code. It's not a huge code base. It's no, actually it's pretty. Not. It's pretty simplistic. Of these, these uh, mind blowing games from back in the day, and you go back and look at the code. It's actually quite simple. So I love doing that because, it, first of all, it's nostalgia. Mm-hmm. I think second of all, I'm always astounded by what they were able to do with so few resources. You know, Wolfenstein running on two eighty six is not. I won't say effectively, but running on a two eighty six software, no no video acceleration at all whatsoever. Everything was done by the CPU, and it was still able to run. I played Wolfenstein on 286. That's super impressive. Now, large portions of the things that need to be performance in Wolfenstein are run in assembly because that's the only way to make it quick, as quick as was needed. So they had some really talented developers, and it was a very small team back then. So it was probably either John Carmack or John Romero doing the actual assembly code. But it was super stinking fast. That was a thing that we don't do anymore. But back in the mid-90s, when you had to do something that was just absolutely positively had to be as fast as possible you'd be writing your c code and then you would just drop into an assembly section and the compiler would read that and just take the instructions and put them in directly as you do it as i recall gcc somewhere along the way started trying to intelligently fix those sections and actually ended up causing problems you remember that no okay but it's what we used to do and we needed something very fast it's just put an assembly section into your c code yeah well because you had less hardware nowadays yeah. we have such so much hardware that developers use ridiculous they use ruby things which and takes don't care at all which is why a simple application that's a front end of dd is 100 megabytes yeah that's just, that's just ridiculous stupid. that's just stupid there's no need for that uh, but you know we grew up in an era where hardware was limited and so if you could save instructions do it because mm-hmm. it'll make your code faster and more streamlined I yeah, mean, it's it's one of the things that really frustrates me is how inefficient stuff is. Like, it is. You, if yeah. you look at my cell phone, I mean, that's a quad-core processor that's like, I don't know, one point something gigahertz. Uh, I don't know how much RAM it has. But I can actually pull up a web page faster on my Pentium 3 Coppermine 600 megahertz system with 192 meg RAM than I can on this phone. Yep. Like, excuse me. How is that possible? Because there's so much crap on the phone and the browsers are so complex mm-hmm. that rendering an HTML page takes longer. Mm-hmm. I hate how long things take, but I don't get to decide that. and I'm not yeah. going to dive into the browser world and try to make my own. Browsers are practically their own computers. They've gotten so big over the last 20 years, they do so many things. They're the new Emacs. Uh, yeah, yeah, actually, that's a very good analogy. I mean, we're seeing whole operating systems run inside of a browser now. People are trying to write operating systems in WebAssembly which is kind of silly if you think about it, but they're doing it. So you would boot up your system and open the browser and then your actual system experience would start or something. It's like we got this, we talked about this early on in this podcast. We, we've seen these trends before. And one of the trends that always comes back and forth is this trend between um, everything centralized, monolithic, and then distributed and client-server approach. So... We've been kind of monolithic on our operating systems. It seems like now they're sliding back again towards we've got some source where we're hosting all the actual operating system experience and we're going to connect to that. 
which I don't actually care for. I prefer a monolithic because it's uh, you don't have as many dependencies on external things when it's all monolithic. Yeah, but it takes more resources locally. Not that that's a huge problem, but you but, can do everything locally. Mm-hmm. You're not like okay, I can't use my system now because the internet's down. Yeah, I have a big complaint about game. Modern game consoles are doing digital delivery of the games, and all of them now are wired such that you have to be connected to the internet to play them. Not all of them. Yeah, so the delivery, digital delivery, I don't mind, but the you have to be connected yeah. to play is is a line in the sand for me. Yeah. So digital delivery is very convenient, but it comes at the cost of always on connection. And I'm, I live in the suburbs, so I do have an always on connection, but I aspire to live out, and I don't think I'm going to always have an always on connection. Sometimes it's going to be spotty. And if I want to open up the latest SimCity or something, and it won't run because it connect, can't connect to its home servers, that's going to make me mad. That- and you can't open it up 10 years later because they'll take the servers offline. Exactly. So then, oh, there's a game that I used to play that I love. Now I can't play. It's, just, it's because, got a shelf life. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think we touched on that on our gaming yeah. episode. Just the good publishers, what they'll do is when it's time to shut those servers down, they'll issue a final patch which disables the always-on check. Some publishers just don't care or they've gone out of business or, or game studios, whatever it is. Sometimes they just don't give a shit. You know, they just don't care. So down with those people. It's, it's funny how the experience last night has brought up so much of this nostalgia and like i'm just gonna need to like relive the nostalgia for a couple of days it's really kind of fun that was really fun last night it may not have looked like it but i enjoy the challenge of going into an environment where you don't have everything you expect and you don't always know what it is you don't have that you expect so you gotta kind of account for it like on that keyboard that i was using last night there was no left right up and down all we had to do is turn off numlock and use the numlock keypad to move things around that would encourage you to be a little more efficient in your typing yeah, that you didn't have to move around much. So but the benefit of that keyboard, though, is of course it has a trackball built into it where right. the, the up, down, left, right is, so that when you do launch something that's graphical, you don't also have to have a mouse to worry about. Exactly. That was that was the big upside, and I was able to counteract for it. But it's just like, oh, that's right, I got to do it this way. I kind of like that challenge. I don't know what of those I'm going to find, but going back to old stuff, it's nice to remember where we've come from, know your roots, kind of thing. So I really enjoyed the heck out, especially early on when we were like very quickly figuring out, okay, what's going on. We were walking through the S traces and showing people what what I was looking for, and like I mapped out what all the FDs were that I could see, and I was just it's just fun for me to go back and troubleshoot and do that kind of stuff. Yeah, I also think it was fun because at that time the the room temperature was decent. That's true. It, it, it had to get hot. It hadn't creeped up to like ninety seven degrees. It was getting that. real hot. So that. that that kind of sapped some of the energy out of uh and the fun out of it. If if it had gotten cooler or if we'd been able to open the windows or something, I think we could have gone longer and had another another couple shots, but I was just getting tired because it was one fifteen here. Yeah. So it was just it was late. And uh I was surprised we had people like hanging with us all the way through. Yeah. Frankly. There were troopers. There were some troopers that hung the whole time. Most everybody else that was you know, not so crazy like we were, went to bed. Yeah. So if you made it all the way through, I think you said this right at the end of the broadcast. If you're still with us or if you're, if you're watching this on YouTube and you made it all the way through, bravo. Yeah, I almost wish I knew so I could, like, you know, give them a medal of some kind. Right. Like, congratulations, you survived. Yeah. 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 So that was a real fun experience. I, I enjoyed it last year. I enjoyed the failures last year because it was, again, the nostalgia trip. I enjoyed the troubleshooting this year. And I know the, part of the reason we did this is because we are we don't have an in-person beer share. Mm-hmm. But I would like next year when ostensibly we are back in person, I'd like to do this again. Do it live at the beer share or something. It'll be loud. 
So I don't know. We may have to go into a separate room to do it. But it could be like live audience troubleshooting of something crazy. I don't know. If yeah, that was, I'll we'll, talk to Jeremy about it and see yeah, what he thinks. We'll see what people think if they if they like the idea or not. So if people really seem to like last year, I hope they like this year. I guess we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for sticking with us on this uh, retrospective uh, podcast episode. Um, if you have thoughts, feelings, opinions, uh, let me know. You can reach me in the Telegram or the Matrix channel, or you can email me, jt at mindripmedia.com. Uh, we'd love to hear what your thoughts were. Um, if you actually were watching the stream uh, the other night on, or last week or so, whatever it happens to be, uh, itself, uh, let me know what you thought. Um, yeah. Anything else, Jeff? No, just uh, be excellent to each other. 